Welcome to Music History Monday for November 1st, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is La Davina in Chicago. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the American operatic debut on November 1st, 1954, 67 years ago today, of La Divina, the Divine One, meaning Maria Callas at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. Callas performed her signature role of Norma in Vincenzo Bellini's opera of the same name under the baton of Nicola Rescigno. I have never envied great athletes or dancers, except perhaps for the income potential of the former. My general lack of envy stems from the all-too-brief shelf life of such careers, with rare exception Phil Negro, George Blanda, George Foreman, and Tom Brady come to mind, most top athletes and dancers hit their prime in their 20s. By their 30s, wear and tear and the aging process have damaged their bodies and eroded their skills and will soon enough bring their careers to an end. You know, magnificent, though they still are. Steph Curry, 33 years old, born 1988, and LeBron James, presently still 36 years old, born 1984, are considered to be among the old men of their sport, that being professional basketball. An old man at 33? Please. What professional athletes, dancers, and musicians all have in common is that they will have begun doing what they do at a young age. The sorts of motor skills, neural connections, and musculature high-end athletes, dancers, and musicians require must be wired in and built up while the body develops. What this means is that from almost the beginning of their lives, their emotional well-being is inextricably linked to their self-identity as athletes, dancers, and musicians. And this is why I've never envied athletes or dancers. You see, barring a major injury or a chronic inflammatory disease like arthritis or tendinitis, musicians can continue playing their instruments at a professional level into their eighth, ninth, and even their tenth decades. But the bodies of athletes and dancers break down, and at a fairly young age, they are forced by physical reality to abandon that one thing that has dominated and defined their lives to that time. For many athletes and dancers, retirement can mark a harrowing emotional crash and burn. Some athletes and dancers quit while they're on top, while others drag out their careers for as long as they can, their deteriorating skills revealed for all to see shadows of their former selves. Opera singers as athletes. 
We've discussed this issue of where opera singers stand and sit and lie prone regarding the physical nature of their profession. Are they musicians or are they athletes? Some might say they are neither, others that they are both. And still others will take me to task for putting forth a flawed binary. But it is not a flawed binary. Because while musicians use their bodies to operate musical instruments, the bodies of opera singers are themselves their instruments, unamplified instruments at that. And the physical exertion and wear and tear opera singers experience plying their trade is, to my mind, much closer to that of a long-distance runner than that of someone playing a cello or a clarinet. One reason why many opera singers tend towards girth, especially those who specialize in the operatic equivalents of triathlons, meaning the stage works of Verdi and Wagner, is that all that muscle and flab helps to support the diaphragm and provides stamina. Now we all know that not all female opera singers are built like brass brassiered Valkyries, but some are and they learned and developed their craft based on the support given their voices by all that heft. Differences of opinion. The words Maria Callas are, for many opera fans, fighting words. For many, she was the ultimate 20th century diva, a flamboyant, preternaturally skilled singer with the looks of a Greek goddess and the acting skills of Meryl Streep. But Callas's instrument began to deteriorate starting in 1954, the year she made her American debut in Chicago 67 years ago today, and two months before her 31st birthday. That decline was rapid. And by 1960, many listeners found her voice to be scratchy, strained, and at the upper end, out of tune. The question as to what happened to La Divina has been asked over and over again. Did she, like so many professional athletes and dancers, simply use her body up and then sustain her career past the point of prudent retirement? Or was her deterioration due to her extravagant lifestyle? Was it the result of overuse and abuse of her voice? Was it the cigarettes? Undoubtedly, some combination of the above contributed. But primarily, the breakdown in her voice was the result of her weight loss. Maria Callas, 1923 to 1977. I would gladly wager that more words have been written about Maria Callas than any other opera singer in history. Hers was a fascinating and a troubled life. She was born on December 2, 1923 at the Flower Hospital, today the Terence Cardinal Cook Healthcare Center at 1249 Fifth Avenue in New York City. The name on her birth certificate is Sophie Cecilia Kalos, although she was christened Maria Anna Cecilia Sophia Caligaropoulos. Mary, as she was called, 
spent her first four years living in an ethnically Greek neighborhood in Astoria, Queens. At the age of four, her family moved to 192nd Street in the Washington Heights section of Manhattan. That's where Callis grew up, with her father George, a philandering pharmacist, as it were, her mother, Elmina Evangelia, called Litza by apparently everybody, and her older sister, Yakinthi, Jackie, who had been born in 1917. By her own account, Callis's was a miserable childhood. Her parents fought constantly. When Callis's mother, Litza, discovered that her youngest daughter had a voice, she pushed her to sing in a manner that amounted to abuse. Callis remembered, quote, I was made to sing when I was only five, and I hated it, unquote. In an interview printed in Time magazine in 1956, Callis described her childhood this way, quote, My sister was slim and beautiful and friendly, and my mother always preferred her. I was the ugly duckling, fat and clumsy and unpopular. It is a cruel thing to make a child feel ugly and unwanted. I'll never forgive her for taking my childhood away. During all the years I should have been playing and growing up, I was singing or making money. Everything I did for them was mostly good, and everything they did for me was mostly bad." Unquote. Again, I was the ugly duckling, fat and clumsy. That doesn't sound like the Maria Callas we know, but a big child she was. And it was as a big person that Maria Callas learned to sing. Her musical education took place in Greece as Maria's parents split in 1937 and Litza took her two daughters back home to Athens. It was in 1937 that the still 14-year-old Mary slash Maria Callas began studying voice with Maria Travella at the Greek National Conservatoire in Athens. Twenty years later, in 1957, Travella recalled her impression of, quote, Mary, a very plump young girl wearing big glasses for her myopia. The tone of the voice was warm, lyrical, intense. It swirled and flared like a flame and filled the air with melodious reverberations like a carillon. It was by any standards an amazing phenomenon. Or rather, it was a great talent that needed control, technical training, and strict discipline in order to shine with all its brilliance." Unquote. Travella remembered the 15-year-old Maria Callas as being, quote, a model student, fanatical, uncompromising, dedicated to her studies, heart and soul. Her progress was phenomenal. She studied five or six hours a day. Within six months, she was singing the most difficult arias in the international opera repertoire with the utmost musicality, unquote. Callas made her professional debut in February 1941, though understandably, her career didn't begin to take off until after the end of World War II in 1945. It was a run in Venice in 1949 that made her fame. Here's what happened. In 
she was scheduled to sing four performances of Brunhilde in Wagner's Die Valkur at the Teatro La Fenice in Venice, when Margarita Carrosio, who was to sing the role of Elvira in Vincenzo Bellini's I Puritani at La Fenice the following week, took ill. Even as she was rehearsing and performing Die Valkur, Callas learned the role of Elvira in six days and sang Brunhilde and Elvira in back-to-back -back runs. You want to talk about winning an Iron Woman triathlon? Finishing at the top in the Western States 100-mile endurance run? Oh my, Maria Callas was da bomb. The public and the critics were stunned by her feat. Of Callas's Elvira, one critic wrote, quote, even the most skeptical had to acknowledge the miracle that Maria Callas accomplished, the flexibility of her limpid, beautifully poised voice and her splendid high notes. Her interpretation also has a humanity, warmth, and expressiveness that one would search for in vain in the fragile, pellucid coldness of other Elviras." Unquote. The opera producer and director Franco Zeffirelli, 1923 to 2019, put Callas's accomplishment in perspective. Quote, what she did in Venice was really incredible. You need to be familiar with opera to realize the size of her achievement. It was as if someone asked Birgit Nielsen, who is famous for her great Wagnerian voice, to substitute overnight for Beverly Sills, who is one of the great coloratura sopranos of our time." Unquote. Weighty Matters The Maria Callas, who accomplished this operatic feat in Venice, was the heavy woman she had always been. According to Callas herself, quote, heavy, one can say, yes, I was but I'm also a tall woman, five, eight and a half, and I used to weigh 200 pounds, unquote. Yeah, in fact, looking at pictures of her at the time, Maria Callas weighed significantly more than 200 pounds. In May of 1953, the 30-year-old Callas decided she had grown too big. According to Rudolf Bing, the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera, she had, in fact, grown, quote, monstrously fat, unquote. Callas later recalled, quote, I was getting so heavy that even my vocalizing was getting heavy. I was tiring myself. I was perspiring too much, and I was really working too hard. I couldn't move freely. It was uncomfortable, and I didn't like it, unquote. And so the Divine One went on a diet. And between 1953 and early 1954, she lost over 80 pounds, becoming in the process the most beautiful opera singer of her time. But a wobble suddenly appeared in Callis's voice. Had she altered her physical structure too much? The American music critic Henry Pleasance thought so, quote, Singing, and especially opera singing, requires 
physical strength. Without it, the singer's respiratory functions can no longer support the steady emissions of breath essential to sustaining the production of focused tone. The breath escapes, but it is no longer the power behind the tone or is only partially and intermittently. The result is a breathy sound, tolerable but hardly beautiful, when the singer sings lightly and a voice spread and squally when under pressure." Unquote. Joan Sutherland, likewise, believed that Callis's weight loss damaged her voice. In an interview on the BBC, Sutherland remembered hearing Callis in Norma in 1952, before her weight loss. Quote, it was a shock, a wonderful shock. You just got shivers up and down the spine. It was a bigger sound in those earlier performances before she lost weight. I think she tried very hard to recreate the sort of fatness of the sound which she had when she was as fat as she was. But when she lost the weight, she couldn't seem to sustain the great sound that she had made, and the body seemed to be too frail to support the sound that she was making. Oh, but it was oh so exciting. It was thrilling. I don't think that anyone who heard Callus after 1955 really heard the Callus voice." Callus's biographer, Michael Scott, also believes that, quote, her loss of strength and breath support was directly caused by her rapid and progressive weight loss, unquote. Scott further asserts that in Callis's recordings from 1954, which were made immediately after her 80-pound weight loss and for the remainder of her career, quote, not only would the instrument lose its warmth and become thin and acidulous, but the altitudinous passages would to her no longer come easily." Unquote. The American soprano Renee Fleming, born 1959, believes that videos of Callis performing in the late 1950s and early 1960s reveal her problems with breath support. Quote, I have a theory about what caused her vocal decline, but it's more from watching her sing than from listening. I really think it was her weight loss that was so dramatic and so quick. It's not the weight loss per se. You know, Deborah Voigt has lost a lot of weight and still sounds glorious. But if one uses the weight for support and then it's suddenly gone and one doesn't develop another musculature for support, it can be very hard on the voice. And you can't estimate the toll that emotional turmoil will take. I was told by someone who knew her well that the way Callis held her arms to her solar plexus allowed her to push and create some kind of support. If she were a soubrette, meaning a light-voiced singer playing flirtatious characters, it would never have been an issue. But she was singing the most difficult repertoire, the stuff that requires the most stamina, the most strength. Unquote. In an interview conducted not long before her death in September 1977, Callis confessed, quote, I never lost my voice, but I lost strength 
in my diaphragm. Because of those organic complaints, I lost my courage and boldness. My vocal cords were and still are in excellent condition, but my sound boxes have not been working well, even though I have been to all the doctors. The result was that I overstrained my voice and that caused it to wobble." Unquote. Whatever forces conspired to rob her of her voice, of which her weight loss was the major contribution. Callis's singing career was, for all intents and purposes, over by the time she was 40. That was a tragedy, as was her premature death from a heart attack on September 16, 1977, at the age of just 53. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.